The good news this morning comes from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the 15th chapter, beginning at the 50th verse. What I am saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Listen, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When this perishable body puts on imperishability and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the work of the Lord, because you know that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, this morning we come to the final in our Lenten series in which we have been thinking together about the whole experience of hope in our lives. Um, we have uh, together done a number of different sermon series over the years, and I'd have to say that no theme have I enjoyed more than this one, in part because, as I have mentioned to you before, I too want to become a more hopeful person. Uh, hope is as essential to our spirits, it seems to me, as water and air are to our bodies. But we have also said that while hope is essential, it is not absolute. In other words, it has to be grounded in reality. There is a significant difference between fantasy and hope. We have also tried to make the connection between hoping and helping. Because hope grows out of the belief that there is a power beyond us that really does care about us, cares whether we sink or swim. And so hope is more than just positive thinking. It's not something we can do all by ourselves, but it is finally spiritual. It means shifting the focus to something, someone that is greater than all that we have done or are capable of doing. Now, over these past few weeks, we've talked about hope as it, as it applies to the future. What can we expect from God without setting ourselves up for disappointment? And as it applies to the past, how we process our memories. This morning, I wanna focus on another segment of our lives Star Trek would call this the final frontier. In other words, life after death. 
and on another aspect of who God is, namely, his steadfast love endures forever, the everlastingness of God and God's relationship with us. I think Reinhold Niebuhr was right when he said, the way we approach our ultimate end determines how we approach our lives today. If I am going to live with God forever, that means I am living with God right now. And so Easter is not just a holiday, not just something that happened 2,000 years ago in a remote part of the Roman Empire, but Easter is a lens through which we see life. It is a way of doing life. Now, death has, for much of human history, been viewed as something ominous, something threatening. The letter to the Hebrews says, I think accurately, that many people have lived their whole lives in bondage to the fear of death. The great writer Homer put it this way. He said, that which we call life is destroyed by death and none can take away its terror. I want to suggest this morning that if we shift our vision to the image of God that comes in the greatest story ever told, that that assumption about life and death simply does not hold water. I think that one of the things that complicates our grief, one of the reasons why we are so often terrified of death is that many of us grew up with these childhood impressions of death. And unless we, unless we grow up and move beyond these, we wind up dealing with very adult issues, but only through the lens of a childish faith. I've said before, um, children, simply due to their lack of experience, are keen observers, but often very poor interpreters. That is, they take everything in, but simply because of their lack of experience, they come to erroneous conclusions about what they have observed. I heard a minister talk about his son one day who came home afternoon uh, after the services and said to his father, um, how does God accomplish so much when he has only one hand to work with? And the father said, what are you talking about? He said, well, I heard in the creed this morning that Jesus is sitting on the right hand of the Father, so he's only got one hand to work with. Well, I mean, that is the kind of literalism that a child works with. Now, it was my experience, at least as a child, that I came to two images of death that are utterly understandable, I think very common, but which I have come to believe are not the deepest truth. You know, the Apostle Paul said, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became an adult, I gave up childish ways. And I think that's exactly what the gospel has the power to do for us. My first image of death uh, came out of an experience. I was growing up in New York City, still in elementary school. Um, I remember one night my father came home to our fifth floor apartment and in his hands uh, was a beautiful eight-week-old Scottish Terrier. We named him Sandy. 
I was so excited, you know, a child just has to tell somebody right away. I ran down the hall to my friend's house and dragged him down to see this new addition to our family. And Sandy turned out to be a wonderful part of our family. However, both of my parents worked, and so they couldn't walk this new puppy. So every morning we would take Sandy around to my grandparents who lived in another apartment house around the corner. And, uh, but my grandparents were too old to walk him. So they had a neighbor named Frank who would come over every afternoon and take Sandy for a walk. Now, Sandy was a, a wonderful dog, but perhaps not the brightest you have ever met. Uh, and so we always walked Sandy on a leash. This, of course, was the Bronx. But Frank apparently didn't listen, or he didn't want to anyway. And so one day when I was at school, Frank was walking Sandy without a leash, and Sandy loved to chase trucks and bite their tires. And before I came home from school that day, Sandy had been run over by a truck. I left for school. Sandy was there. I came back. Sandy had been boxed up. I never actually saw him again. Now to a child, again, a keen observer but very poor interpreter, that experience suggested to me that death is the ultimate annihilator, that whatever death touches no longer is anymore. If that is your ongoing image of death, if that's the way you honestly believe that death operates, then it is not surprising um, that that gives rise to an incredible sense of fear. And my sense is that there are lots of people out there who have grown to physical maturity. They're well-educated and sophisticated in many ways, but who have never updated that childhood image. I have come to know very intelligent people who will never go to a funeral or memorial service, or for that matter, never want to visit at the hospital or the ICU. Why is it that some 60 to 70% of the adults in this country for all that we know, never make a will, never make any preparations for that event that is bound to happen to every one of us. You have to conclude that the fear of death is one of the pervasive dynamics of our society. Now, the other image that I came to growing up, closely related to the first, is that death is a thief. I clearly thought of Sandy as being my dog. And so death had come not only to destroy him, but had stolen from me what was rightfully mine. And therefore, there, and there are, of course, uh, all kinds of people out there, again, well-educated, sophisticated people, who, when they have lost someone dear to them, feel not only saddened, but angered and enraged because they feel like a terrible injustice has been done to them. Now, sometimes that anger is directed towards a person, perhaps a doctor, sometimes to an institution, um, a hospital, or the church. But as often as not, the object of that anger is God himself. I have heard person after person say, what right did God have to take this person from me, this one who belonged to me? 
And I can tell you that over the years I have seen people lose whatever faith, whatever trust in God they had because they felt like they had been robbed. Now both of those images, death as the annihilator, death as a thief, are perfectly understandable. But I want to suggest to you that part of what it is to be a follower of Jesus is to see life through the lens of Easter. The psalmist says, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, not just into it, and certainly not around it. Now, first of all, instead of seeing death as the annihilator, I think that means we have every reason in the world, according to the gospel, to see death rather as an experience of transition. Instead of seeing from one dimension destruction, to see it in all of its dimension as progression. None of us, by experience, of course, knows what happens after this life. But we do have some clues in this life that we have experienced that I, can, I think can be helpful in helping us shed light on what is going to happen in the future. Every one of us came into this world through a process, as we well know, where two tiny cells came together. And for 36 weeks, that fetus continued to grow and develop. Stuart Emery says, the womb is a magnificent living arrangement. And if you think about that, that's exactly what it is. You are surrounded by this warm fluid that gives you a sense of security. You have room service 24 hours a day. Temperature is a constant 98.6. In fact, some have said that the first thing that happens at birth is we get this precipitous drop in temperature. Um, now, all of a sudden, it's 72 degrees. It's no wonder that we call this a cold world. But the point is, at the end of those 36 weeks, a trauma occurs which from the vantage point of the womb is clearly a death. It is being taken from the familiar and launched into the cold unknown. But from the vantage point of time and space, we call that process birth. I mean, just think of all the things that you have become that you never could have had you stayed embedded in your mother's womb. And that same process um, continues in this life. Many of you have heard me tell the story at memorial services about Rule Howe, who was an Episcopal priest before coming here to Detroit to found the Institute of Advanced Pastoral Studies. And while he was here in Detroit, he went back to his hometown in Pittsburgh just for a vacation. And while there, discovered that one of his old friends was very sick and, in fact, uh, was on the verge of dying. And so Rule made some time in his schedule. He went by the hospital. And there, sure enough, he found Charlie, very sick, but very lucid and very anxious to talk. Charlie said to his friend Rule, you know, all my life I've wondered what it was going to be like to die. And now that I'm right up against it, I am amazed to discover it is really an old friend in a new garb. Rule said, what do you mean? Charlie said, well, 
All my life I've had this experience of having to let go of the familiar in order to gain access to the greater. He said, I remember the first time it happened. I was six years old. My mother came into my bedroom that morning and she said, Charlie, today I don't want you to put on your play clothes to go and play out in the backyard. Today I want you to put on your good clothes because today you are beginning school. Charlie said, I had no idea what that word school meant. I knew the backyard, the swing set, the sand pile. These were all very familiar to me. This other represented the utterly unknown. But at my mother's request, I went. And sure enough, school turned out to be a place of incredible possibilities. There were books, there was music, there were people. He said, I became something at school I never could have become had I stayed behind in that backyard. And that same experience repeated itself as I went on to junior high and then high school. And then he said, rule from all of this, I have learned something. Every exit is also an entrance. You never walk out of anything without walking into something new. And I honestly believe that what I am about to experience is of that same nature, letting go of the familiar in order to gain access to the greater. Now, I think that that pattern is perhaps the best clue we have in this life as to how the God of everlasting love intends to grow us not only in this life, but the life beyond. The same love that brought us into this world the goodness and mercy that have followed you every day of your life can be trusted in all the days that are still to come. The most frequently chosen verses at any memorial service are those wonderful words of Jesus from the 14th chapter of John's Gospel where you remember Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled, let them not be afraid. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. And the incredible good news that comes to us is that Jesus says, and when I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself so that where I am, you may be also. The incredible idea here is that as we make this transition, we will not make it alone. Friends, I think your birth and this incredible process of transition is perhaps the best clue of what happens when our days here on this earth are ended. What did you do to deserve birth? Nothing. Absolutely nada. And how did anybody that you love come into your life? The answer, if you will step back, is obvious. It was gift, pure gift, out of the everlasting love of God. If we are given our aliveness and given everybody that we love, then do you see how gratitude, rather than entitlement, is the appropriate response and the way through the valley of the shadow of death. Life is not fair. 
let's face it, truthfully and honestly, life is not fair because it is gracious. And if you choose to see life that way, then when you come to the edge of the river yourself, or when you have to loosen your grip and let go of one whom you have loved, there will be sadness. There will be real sadness, absolutely and appropriately. But resentment, injustice, I don't think so. Because you will realize that they were in your life, just as you are in this world, as pure gift. The late Carl Armani used to say, when I die, I'm going to get to the place where I have to say, if there's anything else, it's up to God. I'll be a spent arrow. I won't be able to make anything happen. When you get to the end of your rope or the end of your life, my faith is you are not at the end of everything because the one who gave you life can be trusted for new life. Two days after that hospital visit, Charlie did die. Rule was still in town. He was asked to take part in the funeral services. He said he gave the final blessing and then took his place at the front of the coffin and began that long walk up the aisle. He said as he did so, all of his loss in his relationship with Charlie hit him and he hung his head. But then he said for some reason he looked up and there over the back door of the sanctuary, thanks to the fire department, he saw four letters. E-X-I-T. It reminded him of Charlie's words that every exit is also an entrance. It gave him hope. In that hope, my friends, go bravely, go confidently, and above all, go without fear. Amen.